welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Saturday, January 27th. I'm your reader, Will Potter. Let's start off today with the article, Clear Creek Amana Opening 5th Preschool Center in Tiffin. Clipper Early Childhood Academy will be home for two programs, new home for two programs. A new preschool center is opening this fall in Tiffin as students outgrow facilities in the in the Clear Creek Amana Community School District. The center, which will be opened by the Clear Creek Amana Community School District, will replace preschool at North Bend and Tiffin Elementary Schools, opening up space in those buildings for the growing student body there. The new students the new center will continue to be a half-day program with morning and afternoon preschool and before and after school childcare. As before the move, it will not charge tuition. The, the district purchased the Little Clippers Child Development Center at 415 Deerview Avenue in Tiffin in December of 2022 for $1.75 million. The purchase was funded by Secure and Advanced Vision for Education, a capital project fund, fund allocated to school districts based on enrollment that can be used for the purchase and improvement of grounds and buildings. The building will be renamed Clipper Early Childhood Academy and will, be, and will open this fall as a preschool center for three and four-year-olds. Ben Macumber, Clear Creek Amana Preschool Director and Principal of Amana Elementary School, said children with access to early learning are more prepared for kindergarten. They have increased vocabulary, language, math, and social skills, more positive relationships with classmates, and score higher on school readiness assessments. Emily Henry, a preschool teacher at Tiffin Elementary School, will be teaching this fall at Clipper Early Childhood Academy. Preschool is a critical learning period for kids, she said. There's going to be a lot of advantages in having preschoolers together and being able to focus on their needs and what's best for them, Henry said. Leaving Tiffin Elementary will be sad. I've made connections with families there and other staff. It's always great to continue to see kids in the hallways when they go to kindergarten. New subheader says Little Clippers still will offer childcare. The Little Clippers business provides childcare for families with children from six weeks to 12 years old. The business will continue operating in Tiffin in a new facility later until later this year at 809 Buck Street. Amanda Riordan, owner of Little Clippers, said it's bittersweet to leave the faculty, the facility constructed when she opened her business in 2009. She does not anticipate a disruption in its services to families. With Tiffin, North Liberty and Coralville recognized as among the fastest growing cities in Iowa, the Clear Creek Amana District estimates a growing enrollment of 150 to 200 students per year, and the 10-year enrollment outlook estimates 300 to 350 students per grade level. Projected elementary students' enrollment will be over capacity for all elementary buildings in the district by the 2026-2027 school year. The district is in the process of constructing its sixth elementary school to alleviate crowding in its other schools. It will also be the district's largest elementary with a capacity for 600 students. The school will sit on 30 acres of land west of Coral Ridge Avenue and east of the intersection of Interstate 380 and Highway 6 in Coralville. Cedar Rapids Full-Time Preschool Center, final subheader, 
Most preschool programs with school districts are offered at elementary schools. The Cedar Rapids Community School District opened its first preschool center, Truman Early Learning Center, in the fall of 2022. Truman, where there is no tuition to attend, is unusual in that it is a full-day program open to four-year-olds. The district was able to do this with the help of short-term pandemic relief funding, which is set to expire in September. After two years of the program at Truman Early Learning Center being funded by federal dollars, the American Rescue Plan Elementary and Secondary School Emergency Relief, the district will have to resort to state funding, which now funds preschool at half the usual per pupil rate. To continue operating a full-day preschool program, school officials are hoping the Iowa legislature will fully fund the program. Now let's move on to a different article. Willis Dady to open new Cedar Rapids apartment building. Units will help alleviate chronic homelessness. Willis Dady Homeless Center Services is helping some of its most challenged clients get their foot in the door of housing with the opening of a new $3.4 million investment. The 13-unit Chandler Pump Apartments, a renovation of the 1952 Chandler Pump Company building in Northwest Cedar Rapids will provide a permanent supportive housing clients, housing to clients who experience persistent chronic homelessness. The new apartments, initially slated for opening in 2021, but delayed by the pandemic and derecho, will bring Cedar Rapids' total count of permanent supportive housing to 31 units. Our vision is to empower clients to break the cycle of homelessness and become self-sufficient. That is a vision, and this is a strategy to get there, said Amy Reasoner, Vice President of willis Dady's Board of Directors. The long-term housing, not far from downtown Cedar Rapids, concentration of services and adjacent to willis Dady daycare at 800 First Avenue Northwest, will provide a greater chance at success to a growing portion of the unsheltered population that is most difficult to house. With furnished efficiency, one-bedroom and two-bedroom apartments, the clients' will rent will be affordable, 30% of their income, no matter what they make. But weekly on-site, on-site case management and regular meetings, the real key to success with a permanent supportive housing, will help clients reach long-term goals by keeping them in constant contact with the resources they need to get back on their feet. Crystal Carter, a former street outreach case manager at willis Dady, will assume a new role in managing the apartment building. Carter, who was previously homeless, will use her lived experience to inform case management, meeting clients where they're at to slowly help them work on big picture goals. I just want to let them know that it's going to be an adjustment period, moving from homelessness to housing, she said. It's about making sure they're doing it for themselves, with my help. As the, number of, as the number of unsheltered people in Lynn County continues to rise, advocates have stressed the need for permanent supportive housing, an alternative to traditional rental units to meet the needs of a chronically homeless population, often una- unable to qualify for an apartment or live in one without case management. After living outdoors for months or years, chronic homelessness often causes mental and emotional trauma that makes it difficult to adjust to living under a roof again. When I was a case manager and we opened our first supportive housing unit, I remember that one of the tenants slept on the front porch for the first two weeks, said Alicia Foss, executive director of willis Dady. He had his own room and his own bed, but he had been outside for seven years. It was so overwhelming to sleep in a bed in a home that he pulled his bed onto the porch for two weeks. 
While the 13 new units will have a, a positive impact, she said Cedar Rapids urgently needs more. In an ideal world, she, would, she said the city would have 100 or 150 units of supportive housing like this, four to five times what the city has now. We have almost tripled the referrals for the number of units we have, Faust said. That is a forgotten demographic in our society. Here's a subheader. The project and funding. Chandler Pump Apartments, first conceived in 2019, went through three iterations of design before coming to fruition. The initial cost, before the derecho of August 2020, destroyed the second floor of the building. It was estimated at $2.9 million. The original plan for the then two-story building was to put willis Dady offices on the first floor and apartments on the second floor. After the pandemic sent many employees to work from home, willis Dady purchased the neighboring McLanahan Corp building for offices and its day center. There are not many apartments that quali- of that quality in the city that can give people a new start, said Scott Olson, project lead. What I'm so proud of is that we had people who stood with us and said that we can do it in a different way. With more than 7,000 square feet, the building offers free on-site laundry, mailboxes, kitchens, and bathrooms. Two-bedroom units may be used for families or split with roommates. Operating expenses for the building are budgeted through the end of the year. In January of 2025, Willis Dady anticipates more funding from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development to cover operating expenses. In its first few years, the building's case management will be funded by the Mercy Health Equity Fund and a contract with the Iowa Balance of State Continuum Care. Faust said that securing funding for ongoing supportive services is a large barrier to building more apartments like this. Federal funding often comes with red tape, such as restrictions on a tenant's rental history or criminal history that impedes the population served by these projects. But studies show that housing chronically homeless clients in supportive housing units is dramatically cheaper than the alternative. A 2019 Familiar Faces report found that those experiencing persistent homelessness cost communities on average $5,017 per month in local community services. When, when in stable housing, the average service equivalent costs decreased to $263 per person. The average residency for clients in their other supportive housing units is 18, 18 to 24 months. This is our dream, and this is why we're here today, said Aaron Admanson, Director of Development. Now let's go on to the article. Most ESA students already attended private school. Report is first look at the impact of Iowa's education savings account program. Roughly two-thirds of the nearly 17,000 Iowa students who received taxpayer-funded financial assistance to attend a private K-12 school this year already were attending private school, according to the data published Friday by the state. The Iowa Department of Education on Friday published the certified K-12 enrollment figures for the 2023-2024 school year. The numbers provided the first look at the impact of the state's new private school financial assistant program, which allows some K-12 students to receive a taxpayer-funded scholarship equal to the state's pupil pupil public education funding, $7,598 in the program's first year, to be put toward private school tuition and other costs. 
According to the newly published 2023-2024 K-12 enrollment data from the state, 16,757 students used a Student First Education Savings Account at a private school as of the October 1st certification certified enrollment date. Of, the, of those scholarship recipients, 2,135 attended a public school last year and 30,513 were entering kindergarten. Of the remaining 11,000 students, a majority attended private school last year. An Iowa Department of Education spokeswoman was unable to confirm Friday exactly how many scholarship recipients attended an Iowa private school last year, saying that there are other scenarios included in the overall figures. Private school enrollment in Iowa increased 7.4% from 33,692 the previous school year to 36,195 this year. Public school enrollment in Iowa declined by 0.57%. The State Education Department in a news release said that the public school enrollment was on a downward trend prior to the passage of the new private school, fun, school financial assistance program and was projected to continue that trend at least through 2026-2027 school year. 60% of Iowa's public school districts had 10 or more fewer private school sponsorship recipients living within the district boundaries, including 20% that had no scholarship recipients. 12% of Iowa public school districts had 100 or more private school scholarship recipients living within the district's boundaries. With 16,757 scholarships being used, the program will cost the state $127.3 million in the first year. That exceeds the initial projections the state's nonpartisan legislative service agency had estimated the program would cost the state of $107 million in the first year. That LSA projection suggested the program, which gradually expands eligibility, will cost the state $345 million annually by fiscal 2027. The new state program was proposed by Governor Kim Reynolds and passed into law in 2023 with only Republican support in the Iowa legislature. Reynolds did not issue a statement Friday and her spokesman did not respond to an email from the Gazette. When she signed the program into law last year, she said the program will fund students instead of a system. We're rejecting the idea that the answer to improving education is simply throwing more money into the same system, Reynolds said last year. Benefit of tax dollars had already decided that they were going to private school and could already afford it. And now taxpayers are footing the bill, said Iowa Representative Jennifer Conferst, the leader of the Iowa House Democrats and the Windsor Heights. Taxpayers are literally paying to flood the books of private schools across the state. Iowa Senator Pam Yocum, leader of the Iowa Senate Democrats from Dubuque, called the program a terrible idea for Iowa. Vouchers shortchange the vast majority of Iowa students while committing public money to private schools without the accountability and transparency taxpayers deserve, Yocum said. Under the program, K-12 students can apply for taxpayer-funded scholarships equal to the state's per-pupil public education funding, which for the 2023-2024 school year was $7,598. The scholarship must be used to pay for private school tuition first. Any remaining funds can be used to pay for certain approved private school expenses, including books, computers, and tutoring. 
public school districts will receive roughly $1,200 in state funding for each scholarship recipient that lives in the district as a means to help offset any loss that state funding from a student district from a student leaving the district. That is not new funding. It will be allocated from existing supplemental funding programs. The private school scholarship program, which Reynolds administration calls the Iowa Students First Act, is being implemented in phases. The scholarships were immediately available to all public schools students, plus all incoming kindergarten students, public or private. Eligibility for existing private school students is being phased in over three years. For private school students whose household income is at or below 300% of the federal poverty level in the first year and at or below 400% in the second year. Beginning with the third year, the 2025-2026 school year, all Iowa K-12 students will be eligible for the program. In August, the state approved more than 18,600 scholarships applications for the first year. Some applications were withdrawn, and some eligible participants did not use their scholarship, the state said Friday. Now let's move on to a different article. Reynolds scores an A and an F on AEA claims. Governor speaks on Iowa Press about her education proposal. Governor Kim Reynolds was a guest January 19th on Iowa Press on Iowa PBS and spoke about her legislative priorities for this year. One of the most contentious proposal has been her plan to limit the role of area education agencies and allow school districts to go elsewhere, like go to other AEAs or private companies, to find support for special education and other school needs. The fact checker is reviewing two statements Reynolds made on Iowa Press about the structure and leader composition of state's AEAs. Right now, we have nine district, nine AEA districts, nine chiefs, and they're making, on average, when you look at their total compensation package, about $310,000 each year. Reynolds told moderators, including the Gazette's Aaron Murphy. When Murphy asked Reynolds whether Iowa needed nine AEAs, she said no. She dismissed a suggestion that further study was needed before making changes. Well, we did a study in 2011, she said. That's, you know, the danger of the study. The study gets done. It gets it recommended that time, I think, we're going to from 9 down to 5. We used to have 15. We went to 9. Here's a subheader. It says analysis. When the fact checker asked the governor's office for information about the compensation figures... Reynolds, quoted spokesman Colin Crompton, sent a spreadsheet of 2023-2024 salaries and benefits received by the chief administrators of the nine agencies. The total compensation and benefits, including health benefits, retirement contributions, ranged from $264,451 for Stan Rengans, who leads the Keystone AEA in Northeast Iowa, to $354,289 for William Decker, the chief of the Mississippi Bend AEA based in the Quad Cities, who will retire next week. The average compensation for the nine AEA chiefs this year is $312,273, according to the Basic Educational Data Survey collected by the Iowa Department of Education and shared by the governor's office. Grant Wood, AEA, said the numbers reported for their agency were mostly correct. 
Heartland AEA said Chief Cindy Yellick's benefits were slightly lower than what was reported. Reynolds is right when she says the leaders of the nine Iowa AEAs are compensated in total an average of about 310000 each. The context missing from this raw number is the scope of the job and how the compensation compares with other education leaders in Iowa. The Grantwood AEA serves 74,000 students in public and accredited non-public schools in seven counties in eastern Iowa, including Lynn and Johnson, and employs around 500 staff. The Cedar Rapids Community School District, which is a part of the Grantwood AEA, pays Superintendent Tanawa Grover a $305,000 base salary, plus benefits that include health and dental insurance, dependent care expenses, a medical reimbursement account, and $600 a month for use of her car for work duties. She oversees a district with 31 schools and around 14,700 students. The district has around 3,100 employees. The Grantwood AEA board voted this week to share Chief Administrator John Spear with the Mississippi Bend AEA through June 30th since Decker is retiring. Spear is a paid Spear is paid a total of $340,850, which includes a base salary of $220,041. Additional compensation of of $28,963 and benefits. In Iowa's largest school district, Ian Roberts was hired in May to lead Des Moines Public Schools at an annual base salary of $270,000, not including other benefits. AEA administrator pay was examined as a part of the 2011 task force study Reynolds mentioned on Iowa Press. Because AEA chief administrators are required to have the same certification as LEA, local education agency, Superintendents, the compensation and for salaries and benefits would be expected to be comparable between the organizations of similar enrollment and size, the report noted. The Iowa Area Education Agency Task Force found the 2010-2011 compensation of AEA chiefs and the superintendents of Iowa's 20 largest districts was comparable. And here's a subsection that says grade, and it says we give Reynolds an A on the compensation claim. Let's move on to the claim that, of the, that the 2011 study recommended scaling back the number of AEAs in Iowa. The 42-page report, which includes another 57 pages of references and appendices, lists 25 recommendations about how to improve AEAs through funding, communication, and transparency, among other means. The report says there were 15 AEAs when the, emergency, emergency, the agencies were started in 1975. Legislation in 2000 allowed for voluntary mergers, and in 2010, the 15 agencies had become nine. But nowhere in the report is there a recommendation to reduce the number of AEAs. The governor's office did not reply to an email asking whether Reynolds could have gotten her information from somewhere else. One recommendation in the report said that AEAs should consider where consolidation of physical service centers, such as print shops and media centers, would be more efficient while still providing the same service to school districts. But that's a far cry from Reynolds' claim that the, the 2011 study recommended the state to go down to five AEAs, and their grade for this claim is an F. Here's a, another subheader, conclusion. 
the fact checker isn't checking whether Iowa needs nine AEAs because that's a matter of opinion. Reynolds was right when she said Iowa's nine AEA chiefs received an average of $310,000 a year in pay and benefits. That's a big number compared to Iowa's, 22, Iowa's 2022 median per capita income of about $38,000, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. However, it's on par with the compensation of superintendents in Iowa's largest school districts. Reynolds brought up the 2011 school study of AEAs. It appears to say studies often don't result in major changes. But she quotes incorrectly from that study, which did not recommend reducing the number of agencies. Averaging an A and an F will give Reynolds a C overall. Final subheader is criteria. The fact checker team checks statements made by an Iowa political candidate or office holder or a national candidate office holder about Iowa in an advocacy ads that appear in our market. Claims must be independently verifiable. We gave statements grades from A to F based on the accuracy and context. If you spot a claim that you think needs checking, email us at factchecker at thegazette.com. Now let's move on to the article. Communities oppose proposed rate increases. Higher rates would exacerbate energy burdens on low-income residents, the clean energy districts of Iowa argues. More than 60 communities across the state have joined the clean energy districts of Iowa in an opposition uh, to Alliant Energy's requested rate increase for its electric and gas customers. Last year, Alliant proposed a 7.7% hike to its residential electric bills, along with a 5% increase for its natural gas rates. If approved by the Iowa Utilities Board, both rate increases would go into effect this October. The utility also proposed an additional 5.7% increase for electric bills starting in October of 2025. Although the changes would add around $150 more to the average residential customer's bill each year, and even more for non-residential customers, such as businesses and industries. Alliant deems the increases necessary to cover added operation costs, support grid resiliency, and allow future growth, spokesperson Morgan Hawk previously told the Gazette. The proposed hikes in the largest in the company's history mark Alliant's sixth request to increase electric rates since 2004. They would exacerbate existing energy burdens on low, middle, and fixed-income residents, said Clean Energy Districts of Iowa policy analyst Jim Martin Schramm. The Clean Energy Districts of Iowa, or CEDI, is made up of 12 districts across the state, including districts in Lynn and Johnson counties. For example, the city of Decorah already spends around $500,000 a year on energy. Can expect to spend between seventy-two thousand to a hundred thousand more each year if Alliance new rates are approved. That money could be that could money could otherwise be spent on vital public services, according to its resolution in opposition to the proposal. That's a lot of money for a small community, Martin Schramm said. I think they they I think that's in large measure why we've seen such a positive uptake from the communities that have decided to join the coalition. As of mid-January, at least 34 communities in Alliance Service Territory had joined CEDI's coalition against the proposed rate hikes. More than 60 communities signed the resolutions in opposition of the rate increases, including Central City, Swisher, and Palo, 
dozens of members of the public have submitted comments to the Iowa Utilities Board in protest of the proposal. Alliance existing electric rates are among the most expensive in the state. In 2022, they were higher than all but six of Iowa's 101 electric utilities, according to a CEDI analysis. The utility's residential electric costs in 2022 were 61% higher than that of Mid-American Energy, the other dominant utility in Iowa. Alliance commercial and industrial rates were 49% in and 32% higher, respectively. That disparity may impact economic growth in Alliance service areas, Martin Schramm said, referencing the several multi-billion dollar data centers located in mid-American territory. We're the clean energy districts of Iowa, so we are not opposed in principle to Alliance desire to transition from fossil fuels to renewables. We commend them for that, Martin Schramm said. The problem is that in our view, there are ways to do it more cost effectively. He pointed to Alliance November 2021 request to the Iowa Utilities Board for pre-approval of 400 megawatts of solar and 75 megawatts of battery storage, along with their associated lifetime costs and rates. The board initially denied Alliant on the grounds that the utility doesn't, didn't adequately consider alternative energy generation options that could be cheaper as required by the Iowa Code. After filling additional evidence, after filing additional evidence, Alliant received pre-approval last May for the 200 megawatts of solar plan for the Duane Arnold Solar Project in Lynn County. The remaining 200 megawatts of solar in the request, which have been, which have since been identified as the Creston Solar Park Project and Weaver Solar Project, were pre-approved this past October. Like the Iowa Utilities Board initial decision, the CEDI isn't convinced that the investments are worth the costs. They'll push it onto customers, Martin Schramm said. The projected impact to customers' energy bills also don't include other factors outside of Alliance control, such as transmission rates or energy adjustment costs. Right now, and this has been the case for the last 20 years, Alliance sales have been stagnant or declining, Martin Schramm said. If you're not selling more electricity, how can you make more money for your shareholders? Well, the way you do it is by building stuff and owning it. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Saturday, January 27th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. We're going to finish this article, and then we'll move on to today's obituaries. Continuing previous article about electricity and increased rates. The utility proposed its last successful rate increase in 2019, when electric rates jumped by 8.1%, and gas rates by 9.7%. Rates were stagnant through the COVID-19 pandemic, the 2022 derecho, inflation ebbs and flows, and other challenges, Alliance Hawk said. The currently proposed rate hike would allow the utility to expand its fiber network and move overhead power lines underground to to decrease the number and length of power outages. Alliant also plans to incorporate more renewable energy into its portfolio in line with goals detailed in its clean energy blueprint. The utility serves many rural customers and communities with smaller populations, meaning costs are spread out over fewer customers. Hawk said, "Nobody, including us, wants to see bill increase. Wants to see bills increase," he said. 
However, there are more costs down the road if we do nothing or simply continue business as usual. It's why we're planning ahead and acting on behalf of our customers to best manage future costs and meet customers' energy needs. The Iowa Utilities Board established a schedule for the proceedings Wednesday, planning the hearing for July 9 through 12. On Thursday, the board requested additional information from Alliant about its proposed rate increases. Now let's move on to today's obituaries, starting with Richard Dick Dabin. Peaceful and surrounded by his loving family, Richard Dick Dabin passed away on January 24th, 2024, at the age of 92, and has entered God's kingdom. Dick was a caring husband, father, grandfather, great-grandfather, brother, and friend to so many. Visitation will be Monday, January 29th, at St. Patrick's Catholic Church in Iowa City, beginning with a vigil at 3.30 p.m., followed by public visitation until to 7 p.m. The family will celebrate a mass of Christian burial at 10.30 a.m. on Tuesday, January 30th at St. Patrick's Catholic Church in Iowa City with Father Troy Richmond and Father Ken Kunitz as co-celebrants. Burial will take place at St. Peter's Cemetery in Cosgrove. In lieu of flowers and plants, the family suggests memorials may be made to St. Patrick's Catholic Church or Iowa Right to Life. To share a thought, memory, or condolence with his family, please visit Gay and Sia Funeral and Cremation Service website at www.gayandsia.com. Richard Thomas Dabin was born August 19, 1931, to Thomas and Mildred Dabin. He attended school in Cosgrove and proudly served in the Army two years as a sergeant. Dick met his best friend, Mary Cusera, at a dance. They were married June 9, 1956, at St. Joseph's Catholic Church in Parnell. They have seven children. Cindy Holland, Tom Dabin, John Dabin, Julie Quinlan, Teresa Kramer, Lauren Sullivan, and Amy Lures. He has 15 grandchildren and 22 great-grandchildren. Dick was committed to his Catholic faith and enjoyed daily Mass at St. Mary's Church in Iowa City. He and Mary later joined St. Patrick's Church in Iowa City, where they could be seen often. One of his joys in life was having a close relationship with several of the priests over his lifetime, including Father Santanga and being involved in projects to provide safe drinking water in Tanzania. He enjoyed visiting those in nursing homes and hospitalized. Dick and Mary had a passion for antiques, and they opened an antique store at their home on Muscatine Avenue for 30 years. They then opened their real estate office in, on Dubuque Street in Iowa City for 35 years. In 2004, both Dick and Mary were recognized as Iowa City Area Realtors of the Year. He is survived by his wife, Mary, his children, sister, Mina Lee Johnson, and many nieces and nephews. He will be reunited with his parents, in-laws, Charles and Emma Cusera, daughter-in-law, Michelle Dabin, great-grandchild Grayson Sayi, and many close relatives who have preceded him. His biggest joy was his family. He was a friend to many over the years and a wonderful storyteller. Gerald Duane Sijuli. Gerald Duane Sijuli 87, of Cedar Rapids, passed away January 24th, 2024. Private, fam fam 
private family graveside services will be held at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home is assisting the family. Gerald was born on April 16, 1936, in Iowa City, the son of Milton G. and Rita Kral Sujuli. He had graduated from Calmer High School. In high school, he played baseball, throwing several no-hitters. On April 22, 1957, he was united in marriage to Arlene Decker in Cresco, Iowa. Gerald worked as a supervisor at Rockwell Collins from 1955 until his retirement in 1995. He was a lifelong fan of the Chicago Cubs and the Iowa Hawkeyes. For many years, he was an avid sportsman enjoying hunting and fishing. Gerald was a member of the First Lutheran Church in Cedar Rapids. Survivors include his wife of 66 years, Arlene of Cedar Rapids, and son Grayson of Elmhurst, Illinois, four grandchildren, Christy Sujuli Pick, David Sujuli Jr., Alexander Sujuli, and Marcus Sujuli, three great-grandchildren, Allie, Cassandra, and Delina, and sister, Audrey Hike of Cresco, and several nieces and nephews. Preceding him in death were his parents, son David, and twin sisters in infancy. Memorials may be directed to First Lutheran Church in Cedar Rapids. Online condolences welcome at www.cedarmemorial.com under obituaries. Kenneth Ken August Horstman Kenneth Ken August Horstman, 83, of Marion, Iowa, passed away on Tuesday, January 23, 2024, at Terrace Glen Village in Marion. Family will greet friends from 9.30 to 11 a.m. On Tuesday, January 30, 2024, at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion. A memorial service will follow at 11 a.m. with Pastor Darren Whiting officiating. Ken was born on September 23, 1940, in Gutenberg, Iowa, the son of Harvey John and Elise Rosalind Friedeline Horseman. He was a graduate of Gutenberg High School and went on to work for Rockwell Collins until his retirement in 1999. On November 27, 1959, Ken was united in marriage to Marlene Ellen Simmons of Galena, Illinois, in Galena, Illinois. He and Marina, Marlene loved to travel, especially on their annual trip to, ba- to Branson, Missouri. He loved the Iowa Hawkeyes, metal detecting, and hunting for ginseng. Ken was an avid hunter and fisherman. He will be greatly missed by all who knew him and loved him. Ken is survived and lovingly remembered by his two sons, Michael Horstman and Mark Horstman, grandson Eric Horstman, great-grandchild Brooks and Avery, Dennis and Susan Horstman, many cousins, nieces, and nephews. He was preceded in death by his parents, wife Marlene Horstman, many brothers and sisters, and two nephews. In lieu of flowers, memorial donations can be directed to the family. Please share a memory of Ken at www.murdochfuneralhome.com under obituaries. And let's move on to some sports, starting with number five, Iowa seeks bounce back performance. Enigmatic Nebraska visits Carver at 1 p.m. today. The middle cluster of the Big Ten's women basketball hierarchy resembles Forrest Gump's box of chocolates, Nebraska included. They've been up and down depending on the day, Iowa coach Lisa Blutter said. I've seen them play well. I've seen them struggle. I'm not sure what we're going to get Saturday. Somewhat rested and revitalized after suffering their first setback in more than two months, the fifth-ranked Hawkeyes, 18-2 overall, 7-1 Big Ten, host the enigmatic Huskers. 
Tip-off is 1 p.m. today in BTN at Hawkeye, at Carver Hawkeye Arena. We're very excited to get back on the floor, Blutter said during Friday's press conference. We took a couple of days off, which was nice. We've had some time to sit on Sunday's loss at Ohio State, so we've had time to process it a little more. Hopefully we can learn something from it, and it'll help us move on. Kylie Feuerbach said, For a few weeks, we didn't have much of a break. It was nice to decompress and rest our mental and physical assets. Sunday's loss and the aftermath that included a court storm at Value City Arena and subsequent collision between Caitlin Clark and a Buckeyes fan led to the kind of outside noise that Blutter prefers to avoid. Win or lose, we try and block it out. This is why you try and stay off social media. Hawkeyes have won eight straight in the series, but the Huskers, if they are on their game, are a dangerous lot, particularly on the glass. Nebraska leads the Big Ten in rebounding margin at plus 10.5 per game. Iowa is second at plus 9.9. Junior post Alexis Markowski averages 16.8 points and a Big Ten best 10.5 boards per game. She's an excellent post player, Blutter said, and her shooting range brings you out a little bit. A native of Fremont, Nebraska, the Hawkeyes' Taylor McCabe faced Markowski on multiple occasions at the high school level. She, I'm very impressed at how she has improved her outside shot, McCabe said. McCabe and Blutter both considered Nebraska's Natalie Potts a candidate, maybe the favorite for Big Ten Freshman of the Year. She's a power forward who would prefer to post up, Blutter said. She's really aggressive and rebounds well. Two Nebraska players are siblings of former Hawkeyes. Junior Kendall Coley is the younger sibling of Chase Coley, a senior. Annika Stewart's sister, Hannah Stewart, was a starter on Iowa's Elite Eight team of 2019. Now on to a wrestling article. Girls Wrestling Regionals. Success has been quick. Jefferson Buderi continues upward trajectory. A good day for Metro wrestlers. Josephine Budideri didn't wrestle until her freshman year at Cedar Rapids Jefferson. She spent plenty of time around the sport, however, watching her brothers, Frank Shukuru Francis, compete. So when the opportunity came to join the Jayhawks' first girls wrestling team, she decided it was her turn to take the mat. Last year was my first year, Budieri said. I saw my brothers wrestling, and I, just, and I was like I wanted to try it as soon as they were going to have wrestling at our school. Good decision. Budieri has found success in her short time wrestling. She achieved another first reaching the 135-pound finals of the IGH-SAU Regional 5 Tournament Friday at Alliant Energy Powerhouse. Budieri pinned Pleasant Valley's Kaya Moffat in 2 minutes and 54 seconds of the semifinals for her second straight state tournament ex- appearance. It's extremely unbelievable, Budieri said. I want to thank God because I, don't, I didn't think I'd be able to actually be going to the finals today. Top-seeded Budieri went from a little better than a uh, 50% record to a 21-10 mark before last night's championship bout against Wallert Be- Wallert's Bella Miller, who was 26-1. The Metro was well-represented in the finals. Linmar had three finalists, while Cedar Rapids Prairie had two. The Lions' Kate Seary claimed a regional title, 
building a 12-13 lead before pinning Milan's Carlina Buford in 13 and 15, 3 minutes and 15 seconds. Ava Hoffer and 120-pound Ali Jelinek added runner-ups finishes for Linmar. Prairie's defending state champion Mackenzie Childers dominated the 130 field. She pinned her way to a championship, decking East Buchanan's Destiny Kroom in one minute in 27 seconds of the final. Childers tallied four pins, ending her first three bouts in 38, 39, and 52 seconds. Union's community Jillian Worthen is also a returning state champion. Worthen remained unbeaten, recording four pins as well as at 25, at 125. She led 6-0 when she struck Fort Madison's Mara Smith in the 4 minute and 56 seconds of the final. East Buchanan led the team race midway of, through the finals. The Buccaneers had a regional best seven finalists. Looks like there's a subheader, Vinton Shellsburg, second in region. Vinton Shellsburg subscribes to a specific philosophy, according to coach Brant Cochran. Look at how the wrestlers rally around one another and their energy when surrounding a mat and cheering on a teammate. You'll see what he means. It's more than a team, Cochran said. Every time we break it down, we break down with family, so that's one big thing we emphasize. Camaraderies and unity has been a catalyst to Vinton Shellsburg becoming one of the top girls wrestling teams in the state. And a reason for a runner-up finish to Bettendorf at the IGHSAU Region 6 tournament. They've done awesome, Cochran said. We knew coming into this there, was, there would be competition at each weight. They wrestled hard, kept moving, and have been aggressive. The biggest thing was having fun and enjoying every moment. Vinton Shellsburg advanced seven to state, including regional champions Bree Swenson and Chloe Sanders. Both were state finalists a year ago. Ellie Wheats and Dakota Cornell placed second. Mount Vernon matched Vinton Shellsburg with two champions. Kirsten Swart at 110 and 190-pounder Libby Dix captured titles. Both pinned their way through the brackets. Salon's Cara Videppo returned to state with a title at 100 pounds. Videppo, who wrestled at 110 state last season, opened with two pins. She closed the day with a, a 15-0 technical fall over Bettendorf's top-seeded Olivia Hernandez. Videppo was one of two Spartan finalists, which included 105-pound runner-up McKenna Rogers. Kennedy Ella Brown rolled the 125-pound competition. Brown decked Burlington's Kiara Rodriguez in 19 seconds of the final. She wrestled three matches and a total of 1 minute and 57 seconds. Brown, who placed 5th at 190 last year's state tournament, improved to 28-0 this year. Now let's move on to more basketball with another great matchup at Hilton Awaits. Tonight's, today's game between Cyclones and Jayhawks will be broadcast nationally on CBS. Those former Iowa State standouts dazzled a young Tamman Lipsy who, when he attended Cyclone men's basketball games in Hilton Coliseum, particularly when Nyang and company faced off with a blue-blooded Kansas in an always intense and often controversial slugfest. They had, a great, they had great teams, but also at those times we had great teams, said Lipsy, 
who will try and help number 23 ISU upend the 7th-ranked Jayhawks at 12.30 p.m. Saturday in his hometown arena. Just great matchups. If you're counting, that's three greats in one sentence. Deploying such superlatives is warranted when Cyclones take on Kansas, whether at home, on the road, or on neutral floor at the Big 12 tournament. Certainly, our fans are excited for this game, and it's pretty neat to see outside of Hilton Coliseum right now students in tents excited for this game, said ISU head coach TJ Otzelberger, who served as an assistant during those rollicking matchups with the Jayhawks. This, this is a game that has been on the books for a lot of years, so many have come before us. We take that to heart. It's evident in our preparation, our guys' level of focus. Now we just need to carry it forward tomorrow. The Cyclones routed Kansas 68-53 last season in Ames to end a seven-game a seven skid in the series. Lipsy, a sophomore point guard, narrowly missed his first career triple-double in that win, compiling nine points, eight rebounds, and... 10 assists as a participant instead of as a spectator in one of Big 12's must-see series. He eventually accomplished that tripilot feat earlier this season in a triumph at DePaul, but is currently managing the pain that occasionally radiates from his sprained shoulder. You've got to realize it's not a sprint, it's more of a marathon, like that, said Lipsy, who leads ISU in scoring, 14.1 points per game, rebounding... 5.3, assists 5.6, and steals 3.2. You've got to think about the long run in my career, and obviously we've got so much longer to go in this season. The Cyclones have played just one-third of their Big 12 games, but they've already notched up two top 20 wins in that span. Saturday's game against the Jayhawks will be broadcast nationally on CBS, where Hall of Fame broadcaster Bill Rafferty will likely shout onions a time or two as Hilton erupts with loud cheers or resounding boos. They're obviously the seventh-ranked team in the nation, and they've been top five all year, though, so it's going to be a great game. ISU freshman forward Millen uh, Mom Solak said, I'm expecting a big game from myself and from the team, and hopefully we get to go out there and win. That hope must merge with an exquisite execution in order to beat Kansas for a second straight time at home. The Jayhawks already own four top 20 wins this season and feature seven foot two Michigan transfer Hunter Dickinson, as well as skilled and seasoned guards such as Kevin McCuller and Darjon Harris. Dickinson's averaging a double-double. Harrison leads the Big 12 in assists per game at 6.7, or one more than Lipsy, who ranks fourth. McCullers averaging Big 12 best 20 points per game while also contributing 6.3 rebounds and a career-high 4.7 assists. He's playing with a high level of confidence, Otzelberger said. I think what, Cass, what Kansas coach Bill Self's been able to do with those guys in his program, especially after they've been there for a few years, tend to be a big step forward in their confidence, and you can certainly see that with McCuller. One can also see similar growth in Lipsy, who grew up dreaming about playing this game, and now, aching shoulder or not, will suit up for his fourth career chance to topple the Jayhawks. There are just so many great matchups that I watched growing up as a kid that this means a lot nowadays. Another Iowa State basketball article, this is the women's basketball team, Kelsey Jones sparks 
Cyclone women's basketball squad. Go ahead and call Iowa State freshman guard Kelsey Yowens greedy. She won't mind. When it comes to rebounding, steals, wins, anything that can be accomplished on the basketball court, really, the former West Liberty standout's appetite is insatiable. Just ask her. In my mind, I'm like, I want to get every one. The 5'10 Jones said in advance of Saturday's 1 p.m. matchup between the Cyclones and number 24 West Virginia in Morgantown. Jones spoke specifically about rebounding, but her desire to excel is all-consuming. It's a family trait her older sister, Ashley, ISU's all-time leading scorer and rebounder, exhibited in five seasons as a Cyclone. But Kelsey Jones added a unique twist to her family's formula for success. She's a kid, and I think that, I think that, she's a kid, and I think understands that it's not the best ball handler. It's not the best shooter. She's not the biggest, ISU head coach Bill Fennelly said. She's like, all right, how do I get myself in the game? I've just got to play harder than anybody else. And no one on this team plays harder than her. No one. Now, it's not always good. It doesn't always work out. But if you're never going to take Kelsey Yowens out of the game because she didn't compete. Jones averages just 21 minutes, but leads the ISU in steals at 1.2 per game. She also leads ISU guards with a 4.4 per game rebound average and has a knack for hitting the big shot when her team needs it the most. That's because, as Fennelly often notes, showing up is a skill. She shows up every day, he said. She loves to play. She's enthusiastic about playing. And she's even, and even though she, her skill set's completely different, she's got a little senior point guard, Emily Ryan, in her as far as... This is what I'm going to have to do to make our team better, and I'll do it. I'm not going to complain about anything. I'm just going to do what I can do, and I'm going to force them to play me, so I play hard. Joan's tenacity will be needed against the defense-driven Mountaineers, who have blown out the three straight Big 12 foes since falling to the Cyclones 64-54 to January 10th at Hilton Coliseum. West Virginia boasts the best turnover margin in the league, at plus 9.4 per game and has allowed zero points in the first quarter in its latest wins over league newcomer Houston and Cincinnati. The way that we've been in the first quarter, that could have been a little bit of an issue, Fennelly said. So we've got to knock one in and that zero off there quick. We've got just a little bit of time left, so we'll read some times that sports will be playing today. On the radio, there will be men's basketball, Kansas at Iowa State at 11.30 a.m. on KGYM Iowa at Michigan. And then there's also Iowa at Michigan at 4 p.m. on WMT 600 and KXI, KXIC 800. Kentucky at Arkansas at 4.45 p.m. on KGYM and the listings submitted by radio stations. Uh, on Sunday... There will be NFL Playoff Conference Championships, Kansas City at Baltimore at 2 p.m. on KGAN, and Detroit at San Francisco at 5.30 p.m. at KFXA. And then there will be women's basketball on Nebraska at Iowa, 1 p.m., and Iowa State at West Virginia on 1 p.m., UNI at Bradley, 2 p.m., on Iowa Central at Kirkwood, 1 p.m., Central at Coe at 2 p.m., Buena Vista at Luther at 2 p.m., and Iowa at Rookhurst at noon. And then men's basketball, there will be Kansas at Iowa State at 12.30 p.m., Iowa at Michigan at 4 p.m., UNI at Drake at 5 p.m.
And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Saturday, January 27th. I'm your reader, Will Potter. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thanks for listening.